0: I've told y'all before about a new playground that has gone up over on 12th and 27th. You've heard the story of Arlo getting the garbage can instead of playing on the park. If you follow me on social media, you know he had another moment with the trash can instead of playing on the park. The reason I'm bringing up, though, is that park is only about a year old, and it's so fun watching still kids who you know are coming for the first time. They walk in, they're a little hesitant, they're kind of observing everything, and then they just like spread out all over, just little touches here and there, just so they can experience all of it in a short amount of time. I am warning you, that is going to be me this morning with this stage. (laughs) I am going to explore this space because, man, it is nice to walk around and not, watch that edge, watch. (laughs) And not have to worry about falling off of an edge. I'm like a tiger that has gone into a new exhibit here. And I am going to be pacing this puppy until there is a hole in a little rut here for me to walk. And if I get too far away from my notes, that's why. Because I'm probably back there in a corner talking about something. All right, so we are back in the book of Romans this morning. We are, at the Vero Beach Church of Christ, we are good students of God's word. We believe in the power of God's word, and so we want to be good students and to read it and understand it the best to our ability, which is part of the purpose of why we are in Romans. And when in Romans, you have to be very patient and be very diligent as you work through this book. It is thick. It has concepts that sometimes we use, sometimes we don't like, but we still have to explore because it's revealing to us something about God, His character, and His relationship with us. And so, this morning, we are, as I mentioned in our our communion time, we're going to be looking at a word that we're not very comfortable with. And we're going to be looking at it in this letter written to the ancient Christians in the city of Rome. Now, Tracy did an excellent job setting up this series last week. Do y'all remember what we talked about last week? What was our phrase? Gospel. Thank you. This side was listening over here. Gospel, which you may know it as good news, but here's the thing about good news. You cannot appreciate good news unless you understand the bad news. My dad instilled this into me whenever I was a kid, and we'd go fishing. We'd be... Go in, doing, doing our thing out there, and he would say, son, you will appreciate the tug on your line more if you've experienced two hours of slack line beforehand. Now, I think that was my dad's way of keeping me quiet because I'm sitting there like, I'm bored. This is, this is exhausting standing out here and nothing happening, but the lesson stuck with me. Today is going to be about slack lines. It's going to be about bad news, but It's not really bad news whenever you understand it in the right context. So let's set that context. Today we're going to be in chapter 2 of the book of Romans. If you have your Bible, please turn your way there. And Paul is going to be talking to a very specific group of people in chapter 2. Let me just give give you that group right away. It's people that are similar to you, religious folk, people who attend church, go to church, go to synagogue, know and have a relationship with God, or at least in Paul's context, have a high moral standard. Romans and Greek that live by some kind of moral code, you call them a moralist. Now, Paul is talking to that group in chapter 2, but he's already introduced us to a different group in chapter 1. We're going to talk more about that group here in a second, But he frames that group around this idea of good news. Good news, he says, the gospel is that salvation is available to people, all people who are not right with God. But in order for us to fully appreciate that, we need to understand just how not right with God we actually are. So in the frame of not understanding good news until we understand the bad news, let me give you a very practical version of this. Imagine you're minding your own business, maybe you walk into a building and a man approaches you with a knife and he says, I need to cut you open. That sounds like pretty bad news to me. (laughs) Like I don't want to be cut open, I don't have a desire, all my things are better whenever they're inside my body, no thank you, I'm good. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm a doctor, and I I need to cut you open in surgery. Little bit better news, but still, I don't go to the doctor in my regular checkup looking to be cut open. It still doesn't sound like very good news. Usually when I go to the doctor, they do a little checkup. They give me a Band-Aid. I walk out the door, and I actually feel better than I did whenever I entered. But being cut open doesn't sound like good news until he says one more layer. He says, you don't understand. If I cut you open and perform this surgery, you will likely live a long life. If I don't, then you are at risk of death. Now, all of a sudden, what was once perceived as bad news can now be seen in the context of good news. Because we understand just how bad the bad news is. I know if I don't get cut open, death could be the result. And so I am now desiring to be cut open by this man to save my life. So what is the bad news that Paul is telling us about in Romans? Well, we're going to cover that in a little more detail here in a second. But you really just have to look at chapter 1, verse 18 to get the full idea. Where he says, the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven on those who are unrighteous and unworthy. Now, I don't know where you stand on that. I certainly don't want to be in the path of God's wrath, and so I'm constantly worried. Am I in the unworthy category? Am I in the unrighteous category? This seems like pretty bad news. And then what we'll see in a moment is Paul is going to do this little spiral effect talking about the human condition. Now, here's here's the reality before we dive into our text. There are... Some people who do not think that they are sick, that there's bad news, that they are in themselves bad, they don't think they need a doctor, they walk around every day, look themselves in the mirror and say, I'm doing pretty fine, my life is pretty good, in fact, I am so good that I am actually better than other people. Now, whenever I lay out this, you might think, yeah, there's a lot of people in the world who think that. But what Paul is going to reveal that it's not the people in the world that he's talking about, but the people who believe that they are actually right with God. Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read the text together. We're going to read a little bit longer section. We're going to read it together, and then we'll break it down. So don't worry about if you get lost in all of the words. We'll take our time through it, but it's important for us to read it in its entirety. Starting in verse 1, Paul says this, You, therefore, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on somebody else. For at whatever point you judge another person, you are actually condemning yourself. Why? Because you who pass judgment are doing the exact same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things, God's judgment is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think that you're going to escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Last section. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth, who follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everybody who does good For the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Not exactly your light reading. (laughs) Like you don't go to bed reading this at night and thinking, man, I feel really, really good about myself. (laughs) These are my life verses. This is what I live by. This gets me energized and ready and on fire for God. No, this is tough stuff. But we have to navigate tough stuff, even if we don't understand it or even if we don't agree with it at the forefront. So let's remember, who is Paul speaking to? Paul is speaking to religious folks. He's speaking to people in this context who maybe are like him, come from a very heavy Jewish background. Maybe he's speaking to local Greeks and Romans who believe they have a high moral code, right? They think they're right in some way. They may not identify Jesus, but they're listening. They're listening to everything Paul just talked about in chapter one, and they're nodding along and saying, Paul, I agree with you. Those people in chapter one are really bad. They deserve to be judged. So let's read about this person that they're talking about. Chapter one. Into chapter one, starting in verse 28. Here's what Paul says. And since they did not acknowledge God, so he's talking about outsiders, people who are rejecting God, God gave them up to debase mind to do what they ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, decease, maliciousness. They are gossips. "...slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, these people deserve to die." They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And everybody listening to Paul's letter is saying, yes, get them, Paul. Yeah, drive a stake in. Tell them how bad they are. And then what does Paul say at the beginning of chapter 2? Did you read it? He says, therefore, so he's telling us why this is there. That is there so that you know you have no excuse you who pass judgment on those people. Why don't you have an excuse? Why can't I pass judgment? Paul is imagining somebody listening to him, just read off what I just read to you, and nodding their head and pointing at the world, at their neighbor, at their coworker, at their family member, at somebody else, and saying, yeah, Paul, I agree with you. Those people deserve death. Those people deserve to die. They ought to be judged. They ought to receive your wrath. Send it on them. And then Paul flips the script and says, you do the exact same things. You are no better. Paul, in these chapters, he's underlining this reality that we have to grapple with. It's easy to say, it's hard to fully agree with, that we are all guilty, that we are all equally deserving of God's solution in Jesus. And in our process of looking at the world and looking at ourselves, we make a mistake of judgment. Now, whenever I hear that word judgment, my mind often would split in two different directions. I would think of the judgment that I have against other people. We all know that. We're all familiar. Hey, don't judge me, right? We understand that. And then I would separate that with God's ultimate judgment. Like those are two separate events. But what we're going to see in today's text is Paul actually brings these two realities tightly together. He says, actually, if you want to understand your relationship with other people and how you should judge or not judge them, then you need to first understand God's judgment of us. So let's do that. Let's talk about some mistakes that we make. In fact, we will make four mistakes often in the way we judge other people and what we get wrong in our judgment or understanding of judgment of God. Let me just lay out those four mistakes right now. They're fun because they all start with the letter B. You're welcome. The first one, blame, right? We often can point the finger and not pinpoint the heart. Brashness, we are easily able to put somebody or stand, put ourselves as judge, forgetting that we are standing in front of the ultimate judge. Bitterness, we often hate people's badness more than we love God's goodness. And blindness, we can easily see the sins of others while remaining blind to our own sins. Let's dive into that first one of blame. Look at verses one and two again. He says, you therefore, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on somebody else. For at whatever point you judge another person, you are actually condemning yourself because you who pass judgment are doing the exact same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. What Paul is essentially saying here is that you can point your finger at other people all day, but you will never be able to pinpoint a person's heart. Despite how much you know or how much you think you know, you don't actually know. Because all human judgment is distorted. All human judgment is skewed. It's not like God's, which is according to truth. It is flawed in some way because we don't know maybe the details. We may not know the motives. We may not know the particulars. We may not know the causes. We may not know the state of mind a person is in. And we spend a lot of time judging and misjudging other people and just getting it wrong. Like, whenever I was 20 years old, I knew I wanted to have kids. And, man, I was the biggest misjudger of kids, of parents that had toddlers. I would be in a, in a restaurant. A kid would be throwing silverware everywhere and, like, put, you know, pushing food around. Or we'd be in a grocery store, and they'd be having a meltdown, taking stuff off the aisles. And I thought, man, these parents have no idea what they're doing. One day, I'm going to have a kid. And that kid, he's gonna sit in his high chair with a steak knife. He's gonna cut his steak and just eat it. We're gonna have great conversations. We're gonna be in a grocery store. I'm gonna be able to sit in the car because he's gonna be able to do all the grocery shopping on his own. He'll come out, it's gonna be great. Man, how much do we misjudge situations that we just don't know? And how much more do I not know now that so many of you are teaching me and showing me and nodding like, oh, you just wait. And it's so practical, right? We we do it in our day-to-day text messages. My buddy sent me a text message the other day. I got it. I received it. And I was like, oh, man, what did I say? What did I do? I was going back on all of our conversations. I was thinking back to all of the interactions we've had over the past, like, five to ten years. I'm thinking, man, I really messed this guy up. I mean, all he sent me was a thumbs-up emoji. But it was enough to not know... What was going on? We misjudge. We misjudge people who are dealing with mental health issues. We deem them as lazy or unattached or have their own problems or seekers of attention when the reality is they have something a lot deeper and darker going on under the surface. I misjudge people in this room all the time. Half the time I'm like, everybody's just asleep. (laughs) And then I see you're reading your Bible, you're taking notes. The worst one is whenever people get up in the middle of the sermon, right? And I'm like, oh man, what did I say? And you're doing like two sermons at once, like one forward and one backwards trying to think, what did I just say that made someone get up, right? The reality is what I'm going to assume, I'm going to misjudge you from now on. If I see you get up, I'm assuming you're having a spiritual breakthrough and you got to go pray about it. That's what I'm assuming from now on. It helps me out up here. We misjudge all the time. You know, Jesus told a very similar story to these. He talked about two guys who went up to the temple to pray. He says one was a religious guy. The other was not. He's a wretched man. One was a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector, which is a notorious sinner during that time. Or, if you may, one was our chapter two person. The other was our chapter one person outwardly put together, outwardly not put together. He says these two guys, they go up to pray and we'll focus in on the first guy, the Pharisee, who begins praying and saying, God, thank you that you didn't make me like other men. Unjust, adulterer. God, thank you so much you didn't make me like that tax collector over there. You have blessed me in so many ways. Thank you. And then Jesus Zooms in on this tax collector who wouldn't even enter the room, who wouldn't even look up to heaven, who instead beat his chest and said, God, forgive me because I am a sinner. Jesus says the wretched man actually went home justified that day. See, the Pharisee was really good at pointing fingers, but only God could pinpoint the heart. reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 2 verse 2 I mean look at it now we know last sentence that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on what truth is based on what church truth truth only God's judgment aligns with truth which means my judgment often does not align with truth you just kind of put that one plus one together there right and that's because truth is a characteristic characteristic of God It's an attribute of God. It's what makes God God and me not. He's omniscient. He is before all things. He knows all things. And if God knows all things, there is nothing God does not know, which sounds pretty basic, but that's actually how you would state it in a logic class. There is nothing God doesn't know. He knows your motives. He knows your heart. He knows uh, the causes. He knows the particulars. He knows all of it. He knows things that we don't know. David talks about this in Psalm 139. He says, Lord, you know whenever I sit and whenever I stand up. God, you know my thoughts before they even enter my mind. Meaning before the synapses in your brain starts firing off and you get a thought, God has already been there. He already knows it. And David says, your knowledge is far excellent, far higher than I could ever attain. God, you are in a different category. So what does this mean in real life? What does this mean for my day-to-day faith? Well, it means that there are no spoiler alerts with God. You can't play two truths and a lie with God. He has gone before you. He knows you. He has formed you. And Paul, in our back in Romans, he's imagining somebody pointing the finger at the crowd. He's saying, you're pointing the finger at all of the conditions, all of these things that people are doing, when you don't even know the condition of their heart. Man, guys, you don't even know the condition of your own heart, Paul says. Rather than being finger pointers or fault finders or sin sniffers, took me a lot of time to work on that, let's realize that the only one qualified to point a finger is the one who instead had stakes driven just under those fingers. And man, don't you want God who actually knows what's true to be the judge of you? And not everybody else who doesn't. Blame. We've, we mistake it, right? We forget that we don't actually know. Another thing we mess up is brashness, right? We become the judge forgetting that we are actually standing and being judged. Verse three, so when you were a mere human being, Pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things. Do you think you are going to escape God's judgment? Paul is saying, there's some pious people out there who are experts at evaluating other people's problems, but not recognizing their own. Or, as a late Anglican preacher and theologian John Stott said, "I love this. He was writing a commentary on, on Acts. And he says, "Here's what we're doing whenever we're judging. What we are doing is we're seeing our faults in other people, and we are judging them vicariously. That way, we experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penance. Self-righteous people always underestimate God's perfection and overestimate their own. They are content to be plaintiff and judge, forgetting they are actually a defendant as well. Or as the author of Hebrews said, And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Who must give account? We all must give account. In fact, there's two places in the New Testament Paul says that all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and only him and his perfect knowledge can judge us. But here is my secret hope as a hypocrite, because I can be hypocritical. My secret hope is that God is going to judge me at a lower standard than everybody else. My secret hope is that God will wink at my sin but whack other people for their sin. That he'll grade me on a curve where other people won't get that same luxury. Don't take the place as judge. Condemning others while not examining yourself. It's hypocritical. It's a double standard. And because truth is, because of what truth is and the truth of Jesus' judgment of us, we have to recognize where Paul is leading us in chapter three, which says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. So blame brashness. Another mistake we often make is bitterness. Now, this is a big one. Bitterness, where I hate people's badness more than I love God's goodness. You know, there are some people in the world who all they see is the bad. That's all they can see. They see it, they smell it, they talk about it, right? That's all they can talk about. They don't see the goodness of God and how he's operating in the world. All they want to do is identify all the things that are going wrong. Look how Paul contrasts that with God. He says, or do you show contempt for what? For the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is actually intended to lead you to repentance. Paul's providing us some pretty colorful words here to understand God's judgment, but the words we don't use or don't fully understand. One of them, for example, when's the last time you heard someone talk about forbearance with you, like using a conversation, I don't think ever for me. I don't think I've ever heard that out in the wild. I think it's just right here in this verse that I hear it. So what does that mean? Well, forbearance means holding back judgment. It's like a, think of it like a temporary truce. So I'll give you a great example of this. In the Old Testament, Genesis, God announced that he's going to judge the world in a flood. You're probably familiar with the story. Every kid book, Bible kid book I read has this story in it. We know that story, which you may not know How many years was it until the flood came? Well, Noah built the ark, and then it says he preached for 120 years. That's forbearance. That's God saying, Noah, you have 120 years to go change some people's hearts. Go. It's coming. Judgment will come, but I will hold off to emphasize that even more is this word patience which a great translation maybe your bible has it is the word long suffering right whose bible has long suffering in it oh got a hand in the back long suffering so much better because it literally is how it sounds right it's suffering a long time with people even more is the greek word here and that's makrothmia i probably said that wrong but makrothmia right and that is a compound word. It's two words put together, right? You know the first word, macro, which means a large amount. Macrothmia, thmia means anger, a great amount of anger, which you think, well, that doesn't sound like patience. That sounds like the opposite of patience. What is going on here? And that's because in this context, the way it's used is essentially saying, God has this capacity that many of us don't have to experience anger and to hold it inside of himself, to suffer a long time with people. He is patient with people, long-suffering. There's another word here I want to point out, just one more. It's this word kindness, which doesn't do it justice, translation. I changed it here to goodness. Kindness, we think of like meek and gentle. Goodness has power in it. It's, It's focused on truth. Now here's the fun thing about revealing God's goodness in judgment is the word good and God are actually extremely connected in the English language. And with our ancient Anglo-Saxons, they actually, whenever they were developing the English language, these words were interchangeable with each other. So you could say God or good and it meant the same thing because they recognized that the goodness and God are so interchangeable with each other that they can get mistaken for one another. This is true in other languages too. You can think of um, in German, they have a colloquial greeting to each other. You walk into a bakery and they'll say, Gussket, Gussket, which means God is good or may God be good to you. Connection of God and goodness. So what what does this have to do with anything? We're talking about judgment. We're talking about bitterness. We're talking about goodness. How does this all connect? Let me connect it in a story with you. A story many of you are probably familiar with. Some of you I know are not. It's a story that happened a few years ago. It hit the headlines. This was right around the spark of COVID time, so it kind of got lost after it hit the headlines. It's a tragic story. A young man by the name of Botham Jean, young black man, went to Harding Church of Christ uh, University, Um, really astute young man. Uh, Tracy actually knew him. Uh, he went to his apartment one night. His apartment in his home left the door unlocked for whatever reason. Just it was unlocked that day. One of his neighbors came home, Amber Geiger. She's a police officer, got off of a long shift, and by her testament, walked into what she believed was her apartment. She saw a stranger in her apartment, and being an officer, was carrying open fire and killed Botham Jean in his own apartment in cold blood. Now, a lot of stories spread out from that tragic moment. I don't want to focus on any of those. Instead, I want to focus on the courtroom where she was, um, the victim family were giving their last statement, she was gonna get her sentencing, and Jean Brandt, 18 years old, younger brother of Botham, He's giving his testament and he says a couple of things he says listen judge or really to amber because he's talking to her too he says if everything you say is true that it really was an accident i want you to know i forgive you i forgive you and then he says judge i don't know if this is allowed but can i give her a hug and after being granted permission Gene Brandt went over and hugged the woman who killed his older brother, whispered in her ear, I forgive you. In his uh, testament, whenever he's making his statement, he says, Judge, my, my desire is not for her to go to jail. I know I don't really have control of that, but that's not my desire. My desire is that she would know Jesus You know the story of the religious people? Religious leaders, they catch a woman caught in adultery. They drag her out and they push her at Jesus' feet and say, the law says that we can stone her even to death, which is absolutely true. They could do that during this time. But Jesus, what do you think we should do? Now, they're trying to catch him in in a trap here, right? He could either say, yes, you can, which kind of goes against his forgiveness and love, and even they know it doesn't look good. It's not a great moment. Or he could say, no, you can't do that, in which he's then breaking the law. Do you see the trap? So Jesus answers in the only way Jesus knows how to do. He says, here, I'll make a deal with you. How about the person here who has never sinned? You can cast the first stone. Now, the irony of that moment is that he is the only one who actually meets that standard. And yet, he chooses to forgive. Now, what happens after that? The guys, they probably grunt, they throw their stones down. How do you think that conversation went after that? It probably didn't go like, man, that Jesus, he's good. I oh, I love that guy. Full of forgiveness always loving, always looking after people. No, they said, they got together and said, we need to kill him. You See, that is the danger of the mistake of bitterness, is that you hate people's badness more than you love God's goodness. So let me ask you a question. Was God as patient with you as he was with me whenever I met him for the first time and allowed him to transform my heart, then why is it so hard for me to have those same eyes for other people? And it's because we are blind. We become blind over time, and this is our last point become blind to our own sin and we can clearly see other people starting in verse five but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed God will repay each person according to what they have done to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory honor and immortality he'll give eternal life but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does, not, who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. This section is exploring the human tendency to judge other people harshly and being more lenient for our own sin. We call this... Um, We call this righteous indignation. I like to call it self-righteous indignation. There's a story that parallels with this idea that I heard one time. A man is driving into a new town in his pickup truck. On his way into town, he hits a skunk, and it gets stuck to the front of his truck. As he's entering the town, he begins to smell for the first time the stink of the skunk, and he says, man, this town smells terrible. I can't wait to get through it. As he makes his way to the middle of town, the smell intensifies, and he says, this place is atrocious. I can't wait to get out of here. And finally, as the stink of the skunk reaches its climax, it's at its worst, he exits the town. In the same way, we tend to criticize others while neglecting our own faults. And it's usually a lack of self-awareness or of hardening our heart, which is how I want us to. To end here. In verse 5, Paul talks about this hardness. It's kind of lost in the translation of stubbornness and unrepentant heart. But other places, other translations, you can see this hardening of our heart. And this is spiritual, right? Jesus is in a synagogue one time, and the religious leaders come in again, trying to catch him in a trap. They begin questioning him. Instead of worshiping God, they're trying to attack Jesus. And the text says that Jesus saw what they were doing, saw their hearts hardening, and he was saddened. Why was he saddened? It's because whenever we talk about God's wrath, we often think of like God turning a dial and fireballs coming down in our life, like God's wrath. But God's wrath is not about God destroying us. God's wrath is about allowing us to destroy ourselves. Hardening of heart in medical terms has a, has a term. I might be saying it wrong, Dennis, but sclerosis. Is that right? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go with my just simple sclerosis. So just, I think there's other different versions. But essentially, my understanding, it's like tissue in the heart hardens. It calluses over. And from what I read, at least, um, that about 50% of Americans between the age 45 and 85 have some version of this, but they don't even know it. In fact, one of the very first signs that you have this condition is a heart attack, meaning it's too late by the time. For a lot of people, it's almost too late to actually identify the problem. And man, I thought this was interesting whenever you connect it in a far more spiritual way. The the worst outcome that we can have as followers of God is allowing our heart to be hardened, sometimes without us even knowing it's happening until it's too late. And Paul, he's going to emphasize this in these first chapters of Romans, where he's saying we are all sinners, all in need of redemption. The good news, the good news is that We can all receive salvation in Jesus. The bad news is that we all need to receive salvation in Jesus. And instead of blaming or being brash in his judgment or becoming bitter about the the darkness of the world or being blind to his own sin, Paul is going to take this example of exemplifying himself, saying, I am the chief of all sinners. And I am the example of just how far God's grace can extend. Here's the bottom line, and then we'll be finished. The essence of the good news, the gospel, is that God extends grace to unworthy people. And we are all unworthy of God's grace. Whether you are a high moral thinking Greek or or Roman whether you are a religious Jew who've been practicing your whole life, whether you are a Catholic, whether you are a Protestant, whether you have been raised in the church from day one, or this is your first Sunday here, my judgment of others should be a reflection of God's judgment towards me. Based in truth, forbearance, patience, and steeped in goodness. Let's pray this morning. Father God, we want to thank you for this opportunity to come together and to praise you, worship you, to study your word, to understand your nature a little bit deeper, a little more profoundly. Father, forgive us, forgive me whenever I judge wrongly Whenever I get so focused on other people that I lose sight of the darkness and corrosiveness that is in my own life, my own heart. Father, help me have my eyes opened to the reality of your grace and your judgment. Judgment is coming. This is not a sermon about avoiding the topic of the, the ultimate judgment. But it's recognizing your character within it that my judgment of other people is often not a reflection of your judgment, your patience, your forbearance, your goodness, your truth with me. And so, God, as I seek to understand your judgment of me, help it give light to how I treat other people, to how I love, how I listen, how I learn, and how I live. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus in the example we have in his life, doing things that are absolutely radical whenever we put it inside of our own context. God, thank you for Jesus. And God, if there's anybody here who hasn't given their life to Jesus, wants to take the next step, doesn't know where to go from here, but knows they don't want to go backwards, recognize that they have lived a life of judgment of other people, for God that they need to receive some type of judgment that is shaped in goodness and truth. Father, we ask that they will make those things known in some way. And God that we as a church will gather around the people who, who need you most. because God, there are moments in our life whenever we need you most. God thank you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your word. and God may we be the light and life that this world and this community needs. We say this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.